0: Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the events in our lives that have brought us to this point. We know that with you, everything happens for a reason, even if we don't fully understand that reason. We thank you for all the many promises that you give to us in your word. Lord, I pray that we would not forget one of them, but that we would cling to each and every one of your promises in your word, knowing that, you will fulfill each and every one of them. We thank you that you provide for us and you protect us. Lord, we're also thankful for our salvation. We're thankful for the fact that you chose to love us so much to restore us back to you through sending your Son on our behalf. Lord, I pray that we would not forget that. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts, that your spirit would open our spiritual eyes to what you have for us this morning, that it may become a a real part of us, take deep root in us, and bear fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. About five years ago, a news article was posted on a Mississippi news publication blog by reporter Warren Kulo entitled Kids Thankful for Many Things suggest turkey alternatives for Thanksgiving dinner. That was the the name of this article. The article referenced essays that third grade students at a local elementary school wrote, in which if there was no turkey for Thanksgiving, what they suggested could be eaten instead. And I compiled a few of my favorite quotes from the article. Here, here, Here they are. Among the more creative suggestions was lobster, which the author noted was cheaper than turkey, apparently unfamiliar with current seafood prices. (laughs) Another suggested deer as an alternative, quote, since you can just go out and hunt it, and quote, put it in the oven for a few minutes. Another student, an obvious admirer of Elmer Fudd's work, offered rabbit stew as a substitute to turkey. Hot dogs were suggested as a healthier alternative to turkey, by a student apparently not inclined toward a career as a nutritionist. Quote, a hot dog has more vitamins, the student wrote, adding, turkey is bad for your bones. Finally, one student was blatantly bucking for an endorsement deal when he suggested pizza as a turkey substitute. Quote, pizza is very cheap. You can buy pizza for $5 at Little Caesars. They're already made. You don't have to wait for pizza. You can't really argue with the logic of that last suggestion, can you? Today is a Sunday before we celebrate Thanksgiving this week. Man, this year has flown by, hasn't it? A lot has happened this year, too, for a lot of us in our personal lives. Some of us have experienced joy, and some of us experienced heartbreak a million times over this year. Around this time of year, when we think of what we're thankful for, a lot of different things come in, come to mind. The obvious ones are food, clothing, a roof over our heads. You know, that, those are the obvious ones. Others are our family and friends. In referencing the previous news article we started our time out with this morning, one first grader responded to the question, what are you thankful for, with the answer, air. I, I think that's one we can all agree on, that we're thankful for air. But when we think about things that we're thankful for, I wonder how many of us take the time to declare our thanks to God for the salvation and faith that he's given to us. This morning, we're taking a bit of a break from our series in 1 Corinthians and take a look at another letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, one that many who attend our ladies and men's Bible studies will be familiar with, and that's Paul's letter to the church in Rome. In our passage this morning, uh, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is publicly writing about an intense personal struggle that he has and what he's extremely thankful for in the midst of that raging war. Hopefully, what we see in our passage this morning will cause us to find one more thing to be thankful to God for and worship him for. So the first point that we come to in our passage this morning is the basis. Without further ado, please uh, turn to Romans chapter 7. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, It's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, ask a neighbor or look in the table of contents. I want all of us to see this. We're going to be in Romans chapter 7. We're starting in verse 22. And we read this. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner inner man. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Now we read the part in the middle that we already read for our scripture reading a few minutes ago. But why I included these other verses, verses 22, 23, and 25 is this. We'll we'll read them. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Why I included that, along with the end of verse 25, so then, on the one hand, I, my, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Why I included those is this not only establishes context, but we can accurately understand this, and it also shows us the intense struggle that Paul is experiencing that he uses as a point knowing that all believers in Jesus have the very same personal struggle. So he bookends what we read in our scripture reading this morning, thanks be to God, with these two very intense verses about his own personal struggle. Paul notes in verse 22 that he he notes that he joyfully agrees with and affirms that the law of God or the law of grace is at work in the inner man. That's what we read in verse 22. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. He joyfully agrees with and affirms that the law of God or the law of grace is at work in the inner man. This is the basic foundation for why he's even writing the words he's writing. We've been spending a great deal of time in the letter of 1 Corinthians and especially talking about everything about our faith, how everything about our faith has everything to do with God and nothing to do with any one of us, right? God is the one who came up with a plan of salvation. He's the one who designed it to be the way that to him to be absolutely impossible to achieve through human convention, human intelligence, and human wisdom. He designed it to be that way. God is the one who took everything the world held dear and turned it upside down, establishing restoration to him from our sin through himself. That is the second person of the Trinity. The son of God. He was despised, rejected, humiliated, misunderstood, spat upon, beaten to a pulp, and nailed to the societally lowest form of execution available. Where he was mocked right up until the point he took his last breath. A human deliverer is not supposed to go out that way. That makes no sense to the world and its wisdom. And that's exactly the way that God designed it to be. Then three days later, what is absolutely impossible according to natural science and natural laws happened. That deliverer was physically raised from the dead. Not as a ghost. Physically raised from the dead. His body was physically raised from the dead. And again, according to naturalistic science of which some of the most brilliant minds of the world adhere to, this makes no sense. So the only other Conclusion is that it's a fairy tale, right? According to that worldview. And again, that's the way God designed it to be. The death and resurrection of Jesus would be the only basis for restoration to God and therefore the hope of eternity spent with him. Not societal status, not how functional you are, not even how morally good you are. None of that matters. And that makes no sense to the world. What makes sense to the world is that if you're generally good enough, you'll make it into heaven. God even turned that way of thinking upside down and completely bypassed that. He made it so that the entrance into heaven has nothing to do with how morally good you are. Uh Uh-oh. That's not good, is it? But on the contrary, that is the only hope that any one of us has. That is our only hope. God is holy. Not one of us would argue with that, and we wouldn't want to, because if he wasn't, then he wouldn't be perfectly righteous, and we would have no clue as to what righteousness even was, and he wouldn't even be worth worshipping. As such, God's holiness does not permit him to be in the presence of sin. Guess what we are? Sinful, right? Right? You see the problem there? So what that means is that not one of us can ever do enough good things to earn any preference from God. We cannot do enough good things or generally behave well enough to nullify our sin nature passed on to us from our human ancestors. We can't nullify it. It's like me trying to get crayon drawings off the wall with a pencil eraser. doesn't work, right? Now I just have to convince my four-year-old of that. That that doesn't work. The only surefire way to remove the presence of crayon on the wall is to do what? Paint over it, right? Just paint over it. God designed the way to restoration to him to be through what is called justification. And what I mean by that term is this. Jesus lived a perfect life. He followed God's law perfectly on our behalf. He took the punishment we deserve for our sin, death, on our behalf. He paid the payment for our sin that we had no hope of paying ourselves on our behalf. We will forever, he, he will forever remain perfectly righteous. God is the one who chooses to open our spiritual eyes through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity when he leads us to realize our sin renders us hopeless to be restored to God on our own and put our faith in the payment paid on our behalf by the death and resurrection of Jesus, something happens. At that moment, called by some, their born again experience or their moment of salvation or getting saved, what was accomplished by the blood of Jesus covers us with his righteousness. From that point on, when God the Father looks at us, all he sees is the righteous blood of Jesus covering us, and he declares us blameless in his sight, as if we were the crayon marks that were painted over with paint. Our sin is forgiven and is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. You ever try to connect those two? Our salvation from and forgiveness for our sin as well as our restoration to God and all of His promises and being adopted as one of His children and having eternity with Him to look forward to was initiated, enacted, and fulfilled by God. Not us, by God. It has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with how inherently good we are. And thank God it has nothing to do with how inherently good we are. Amen? It has everything to do with the undeserved favor of God towards us. You know what that's called? That's called grace. That undeserved favor of God towards us. It's called grace. And it only has to do with that grace. That in and of itself is an overwhelming reason for thankfulness. Am I right? So we talked about the basis. The basis that, that leads to our, our thankfulness. Paul got that full well. He understood that he himself had nothing to offer to God and that his salvation had everything to do with God reaching out to him through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But Paul also saw something else full well. In verse 23, we read this already. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. I think that All of us as as believers in Jesus know this battle all too well, don't we? We know that at our moment of salvation, not only does God legally declare us righteous in his eyes and restores us to himself through the covering righteousness of Jesus, but something else happens. Also at that moment, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit literally comes and makes a home within us. Our bodies become a temple of the Holy Spirit at that point. Not ours anymore to do with whatever we want, but God's. And that's an awesome thing because what that means is that not only is the Holy Spirit then a seal and a down payment on our heavenly home guaranteeing it for us, but He starts going to work on our hearts. He starts redeeming everything as Paul will state later on in this same letter to the Romans. Redeeming everything for the good of He starts taking those tragedies and heartbreaks and memories of intense pain and starts to whisper healing into them. He takes those sins we've committed in the past and while we may still have to suffer the consequences of them, reveals to us the truth that those sins are not who we are. In Christ, we are children of God, not recipients of His wrath, nor being crushed by the burden of our past sins. Believe it or not, God even redeems those experiences. And on top of all of that, the Holy Spirit starts to transform our hearts so that we don't view the world as we once did. While we may have viewed the world with fear and anxiety and disappointment, The Holy Spirit works in our hearts to give us new eyes to see the world around us. As he redeems all the causes for all of those states of darkness, he gives us hope. He gives us strength to face them. He gives us courage to work through them. And beyond that, our fear of the unknown gives way to the eternal hope that death is only a portal to rejoicing in the presence of our saviour. In short, the Holy Spirit gives us a whole new life filled with boldness and hope and power. It doesn't matter what circumstances we're in or what heartache we suffer. Or, what, or, 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 or We know that we are in the presence of God, literally indwelling us, and we have the hope of eternity. That also fills us with overwhelming gratitude for what the death and resurrection of Jesus offers to each in every human being. While we know that we are given a new nature through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we know full well, as Paul knew, and writes about here in verse 23, that there is still a raging battle going on. The old nature ruled by sin does not go away quietly, does it? No, it does not. As one biblical scholar pointed out, it still launches counterattacks against the Holy Spirit's transformation of us. And that will be the case for the rest of our lives and none of us should be surprised when that happens. The transformation process by the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives is a lifelong process. Counterattacks will be launched by both our residual sinful nature and by the enemy of our souls. Sometimes we will cave. That's being human on this side of heaven. That is not cause to surrender to that counterattack, but rather a source of strength. We admit to God that we know that He knows that we messed up. We own it before God, and 1 John tells us that God is faithful to forgive whatever we own up to before Him and wipes our consciences clean. Again, we may have to deal with the consequences, but our consciences will be clear. That in and of itself is a tremendous gift that we as children of God, forgiven by the blood of Jesus, are given. A clear conscience without any moral gymnastics, without any finagling, without any self-justification, just purely a clear conscience. Once we admit to God that we messed up, He gives us the strength to get up and keep going. He gives us the power to face another day. His Holy Spirit is slowly transforming us day by day, releasing that once so powerful grip different sins had upon us. It's still a raging battle because we know from the Scriptures that we do not merely war against our sinful nature, but also against what? Cosmic forces of darkness. Paul struggled in disgust towards his own failings. And if we just stopped at verse 23, Paul and we would have no hope. We would just be filled with the angst of our failings and sin, like the minister in the well-known novel, The Scarlet Letter. We would only be focused on the anguish that these battles bring. But Paul introduces the truth of what our hope gives to us in the following verses. So we talk about the basis, the battle that we all know too well, and then the bullseye. We all know what a bullseye is. Whether we've thrown darts or shot an arrow, ask John Nittle what a bullseye is. If you don't know. In fact, the word for sin is directly related to that concept. The word for sin has the idea of missing the mark. That's what it means, missing the mark, or missing the bullseye. When we sin, we miss the mark of living by God's righteous standard. When we think about our battles with sin, there is another bullseye that we must always keep on the forefront of our mind and be what our focus is on, no matter what battle with what sin we're going through. And this is what we read uh, earlier today, starting in verse 24. Wretched man that I am. You can see this personal struggle of this raging war. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In this life, we will always struggle in our battles with sin. That will always be a constant. We will never be perfect this side of heaven. To borrow the saying, if I were a betting man, that would be a sure thing. So what's our hope? The great Apostle Paul, whom wrote most of the New Testament under the movement of the Holy Spirit, whom suffered great torment because of his witness for the good news of salvation found in Jesus, whom great churches are named after, admitted that he was a wretched man. He admitted that because just like with any one of us, he knew himself that that he himself was powerless to overcome his sin. He admitted that because he knew there were times and would continue to be times that he would fall into sin. But (coughs) Paul didn't belittle his sin or continue in it because, hey, it's no big deal. I'm saved by the blood of Jesus, so a little sin doesn't matter. No, he knew the gravity and seriousness of his sin. Or why else would Jesus have to literally die for it? He knew how bad it was and it caused him anguish. This anguish caused him to shout out, I am a most wretched man. There is nothing redeeming about me. What is my hope? And without skipping a beat and in the same breath, Paul declared what his hope was. Who will set me free from this body that, will, that only naturally wants to engage his sin? Immediately, Paul declares who will free him from that. Thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, but Paul sees it as a great opportunity for thanksgiving. Thanks be to God. Why? We know that even though the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, we will always war against sin. He is transforming us over the rest of the course of our lives to be more and more like Jesus. But while we are still in our earthly bodies, there will always be a residual sin nature that we must war against. But this is what the resurrection of Jesus also gives us. Jesus rose from the dead to give us new spiritual life and a release from sin nature that only leads to death both physical death and the second death. Jesus also rose from the dead to give us the promise that he will raise us from the death from the dead at some point in the future. We will war against sin until the day we die. But for those who put our faith in the death death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of that sin, death is not something to dread or fear. For believers in Jesus, one of the things it is is it's the end of our sin nature. That's that's finally over. At the moment of a believer's death, our soul immediately goes to be in the presence of Jesus, seated at the right hand of, of the Father in heaven. Our bodies are either cremated or buried. Then one day, as 1 Thessalonians 4 describes, Jesus will return for his children, raise their physical bodies from earthly decay, reunite them with their souls, and give them glorified... Bodies. If there are believers still living at that point, they too will be raised and given glorified bodies, joining with believers who have gone on before them. Thus, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, we will always be with the Lord. That freeing from these bodies of death is our only hope of complete freedom from sin. Sin will forever have its grip released from us. Can you imagine that feeling? that war will have been won. That is our bullseye that we look towards as we wrestle with our sin in these bodies of death right now. That there will be a day when we will be completely freed from sin and temptation and addiction. So what does that mean now? Like I referenced at the very beginning of my message, Paul does not end this section with with that declaration of hope and thanksgiving. Rather, he bookends it with what he said previously, except... There's something a little different about it this time. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. It's a very similar wording to what Paul's already said in verses 22 through 23. But knowing what he then declares in verses 24 through 25, it's said with a much different spirit, isn't it? Making his point before, Paul emphasized the anguish his sin continues to dog him with, then introduced the hope of Jesus' resurrection and what that means for him and what that means for us. In this rehashing of verses 22 through 23 in verse 25, it's done with the light of the hope of Jesus' resurrection and our own ultimate freedom from our war with sin. Yes, we will continue to fight battles with sin in this life. But rather than it being a point of discouragement, because of the resurrection of Jesus, it's a point of simple reality, but with hope. It's going to continue to happen, but we have hope in the midst of it. It's not a source of anguish. We admit that it's a reality, but we do so with hope. As we battle temptation and sin, we can do so with the full knowledge that we will be fully freed from it one day. That gives us the hope to continue to fight in the here and now, doesn't it? Knowing that the war will ultimately be won one day gives us the strength and the Holy Spirit to fight one more battle. Imagine you're in the middle of a war, which in reality we all are. A spiritual war against the the spiritual forces of darkness and against our own sinful nature. You already know the end of the story. Your army wins. You also know that no matter how many battles in this war you fight, you will be safe. Why? Because you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You will not be destroyed, but will be preserved by God till the very end. What does that do for your morale? in your battles in the here and now. It gives it a huge boost, doesn't it? It begs the question, well, why wouldn't I now want to fight in and have victory in as many battles as I'm faced with? Because I know I won't be destroyed. My side will ultimately win one day. See, that's one of the major differences between faith in Jesus and every other belief or faith system in the world or history of the world. Every other belief at its foundation adheres to the belief that if you are morally good enough or functional enough or kind enough or follow as many rules as possible, you'll either be reincarnated as something better than before or achieve nirvana or enter paradise. But it all hinges on what you can do. In other words, the foundation of those beliefs are that you fight against temptation and sin now in order to have victory in the next life. You follow that line of reasoning? But with faith in Jesus, that victory is already won for you. That war has already been won for you. We will still battle against sin in this life, but we do so not to hopefully earn or gain entrance into victory in the next life. Rather, we do so because we know we already have that victory in the next, and we fight now out of love for the one who won that victory for us. It's already a sure thing waiting for us. Therefore, we fight not for our own glory, but we fight for the glory of the one who already won that war and is fighting those battles right alongside of us. So in our time of thanksgiving this week, let us cry out our thanks to God, not only for our salvation, but for the hope that he's already won for us in our raging battles against sin. At the end, we know we will enter into the presence of our Lord, either in death or by being caught up in life, and the fight will be over. That gives us the hope to not surrender or give in now, but rather empowers us through the Holy Spirit to continue to fight, knowing that ultimate victory is sure. And at the end, we can stand before our Savior knowing he's the one who won that victory for us and rest in that truth. After everything we could be thankful for in this life is stripped away. Basics and necessity of life, family, friends, everything. If all that that we could be thankful for in this life is stripped away, isn't the victory of our salvation really the foundational thing to truly be thankful for? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great and powerful truths that you reveal to us in your word. We thank you for the hope that it gives to us. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who has not yet given their lives to you, taken that death and resurrection of Jesus and made it their own, put their trust fully in that to be restored to you and gain entrance to heaven, Lord, I pray that you would create a stirring in their hearts. Lord, we thank you for the life that your word brings. We thank you that there is no lie, there is no contradiction, there is no darkness in it at all, but it is something that we can cling to with everything in our souls. Lord, we know that one day this fight will be over. We will stand in the presence of you and glorify the one who won this battle for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out our time this morning.